Bethel Church, I love you, okay? I love you. I really do. And I am so privileged to serve here, uh, to be an elder and a pastor, and to open God's word today. And I just want you to know that one of my heart's desires is that, um, that I, would, I would be the kind of pastor that when you're dead, I'm, you're glad that I was your pastor, okay? That when you're dead, you're glad Steve DeWitt was your pastor because I prepared you for eternity, okay? I prepared you for eternity. That's one of my roles here. Which leads to one of my primary motives in this more and better, and certainly in my message here this morning, is that we would prepare ourselves for rewards from God someday, from rewards from Jesus someday. So more and better, okay? Why should we press on with, for more and better at Bethel Church? Well, because the alternative to more and better is summarized by a popular candy that I have a box for of right here. Anybody Good and Plenty fans? Okay, some of you like Good and Plenty, okay? You recognize the, the look of, uh, of Good and Plenty. So Good and Plenty, interesting name, right? It's good and it's plenty. That's a high claim for a piece of candy, isn't it? Often with candy, you think, no, it's, it's not plenty. I need more, right? Good and plenty. A devastating vision for somebody's life and certainly for a church. More and better versus good and plenty. What is the good and plenty approach? The good and plenty approach is this. We're good. We, we've done plenty. We got Plenty. We're good. Let's just play it safe. Let's take it easy. Let's not risk anything. Let's not try something. Let's sort of hold to our gains. Let's carve in stone our style of ministry and refuse to change anything. Let's not attempt anything. Let's not step out of the box in some way. Let's not jeopardize anything. Why? Because we're good. We got plenty. Is there a spirit of good and plenty perhaps evident in your life, especially if you've walked with Jesus for very long, where you sort of, I've served him good enough. I've served him plenty. I've invested enough time and energy and money and whatever. I'm good. I've done plenty. Or are you ready for more? Are you ready for better? And these two basic approaches to life and ministry are displayed in a parable that Jesus told that is called the parable of the minas in Luke 19. Might turn there. Luke 19, the parable of the, of the minas. Now, before I get into the parable itself, what is a parable? Well, a parable is a teaching device that Jesus oftentimes used, and even the word itself helps explain it. It's two, two Greek words together, para, which means alongside, balo, which means to cast, okay? So parabalo, parable, is to cast 
something alongside something else. And in a parable, what Jesus does is he embeds a spiritual truth into a very common sort of story. Our parable today is situated between two beloved moments in the Bible. If you look at uh, Luke 19, you'll notice the beginning of Luke 19 is the famous story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And if you recall, Zacchaeus, he, he was a wee little man who climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And children love that story. I have told that story untold times at bedtime and, to Jennifer. And uh, <laughs> I think it's because children, they, I mean, they're wee little too. Maybe they relate to the story because like Zacchaeus, they're wee little. So Zacchaeus, very loved story. He ends that by saying, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now Jesus is in Jericho, that's where Zacchaeus lived. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And that's the other side of this, is that he goes to Jerusalem, and we have, you'll notice, uh, beginning in verse 28, the triumphal entry. Okay? So on one side you've got Zacchaeus, on the other side you've got Palm Sunday. Two very famous Moments And in between those two, you have this parable of the minas. So let me begin reading now, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Now notice the repetition here. Okay, there's two becauses. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, if we're interpreting this, when you see repetition, that's always like a little tip-off in Bible interpretation. Notice the repetitions. And so there, Luke gives two reasons that Jesus tells the parable. The first is his geography. He is close to Jerusalem. And because he's close to Jerusalem, there was a heightened sense of excitement that maybe something big was going to happen. We find the disciples are beginning to argue already which of them are going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And so there was this sense that something big was about to happen. Jesus is on his way to the capital city. The other aspect of this, the other because, is because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The disciples who were there thought the kingdom is almost at hand. Here we go. Here's the exciting moment that we've been waiting for. Now, why is that a potential problem? Well, what do people do when they think that the world is about to end? They oftentimes will sell their possessions, they go to Colorado to a mountaintop, they find a cabin, and they wait for the end to arrive. And of course, when it doesn't happen, they're shown to be quite foolish. Uh, my former church, there was a doctor, and a, she was a a psychiatrist or something, and they were convinced at Y2K that this was really the end. They sold their farm, they sold everything, they bought a little cabin on acres in the top of some mountain in Colorado, exactly the story, and waited for the end to come. I think they may still be waiting. And that's kind of the problem, is that when you think that the end is almost here, the temptation is to kind of like take it easy, and to sort of like do nothing, right? Hey, what's the point, right? This is almost done anyway. Let's just sort of chill. 
And so Jesus, knowing human nature is to do that, and knowing that they were thinking the kingdom was about to happen, tells them a parable to readjust their understanding of what's going to happen in the future. Look at verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, right here, there's some interesting things. He's in Jericho. And Jericho had a most famous resident, citizen of Jericho, whose name was Archelaus. Archelaus was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king who tried to kill Jesus when he was born. Well, Herod the Great dies. Archelaus becomes, you know, in his place, has a certain level of authority. You might remember Joseph, when they're coming back from Egypt, hears that Archelaus is in power and is afraid and goes to Nazareth. Okay, that's this dude that I'm talking about. So Archelaus, his dad died, Archelaus wants to be king. But to be king, or like a kind of a vice king in the Roman Empire, you had to go to Rome and have the Caesar say, you're the king. So Archelaus goes in, this is in the year 4 AD, he goes to Rome hoping to receive the title of king. Archelaus had a vacation home in Jericho. Everybody knew the story. So it's kind of like Jesus is drawing on a local sort of like legend, a local story to make a point. It's a long trip. Matters of business have to be handled in his absence. And so verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Okay, a mina. You're probably not familiar with a mina. A mina is, was a monetary... Uh, value, coin, that was worth approximately, for a common laborer, approximately three months' wages. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. A mina, this is much less valuable than the sister parable to this parable, which is the parable of the talents, because a talent was worth like 20 years' salary, huge number, but mine is much less, and maybe there's even a little point in that as well by the Holy Spirit, that it doesn't matter if you have a mina or a talent, a little or a lot, we all have the same responsibility to do with what God grants to us. So the nobleman gives each servant one mina, and he gives them a command. Use the mina and engage in business until I return. Now that's all he said. He doesn't say, I want you to engage in this kind of business, I want you to go and I want you to do this. He just says, hey, I, you are stewarding this one mina. I want you to make the most of it until I return. Notice that everyone has the same mina. Everyone has the same opportunity. Everybody has the same command. Now notice verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now here Jesus is drawing also on the legend of Archelaus because Archelaus went to Rome to be king. The Jews did not want Archelaus to be king and they sent a delegation to Rome to complain about him and to keep it from happening. By the way, Archelaus, when he, uh, which he actually was not made king-king, they gave him a slightly less uh, prestigious title. When he returned, he wasn't happy. He killed 3,000 Jews as a... Uh, like, I'll get back at you for what you did to me. That's the way things happened in that day. All right, so, go on with the story here. Verse 15, when he returned, this is now the nobleman who has been 
made king, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Okay, so he returns now. He's not the nobleman. Now he's king. The nobleman had limited powers. He comes back as king with the kingdom, empowered to do jolly well whatever he wanted to do. And he calls these servants in now to give an account for what they did with the mina that he had given them. Verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So we see here a dramatic turn of fortune. How much is a mina worth? Common laborer, three months value. How much is a city worth? That's a little harder to determine. Or what is the prestige and the value of governing over a city? An incredible value, right? And so the first guy takes the mina, and we don't know how he did it, but he turned that one mina into 10 more, actually 11 mina total. That's a 1,000% return on investment. How many of you like this guy managing your 401k? Okay. I signed this guy up, please. I give you everything I have, please multiply this. This guy was really good. Well done, good servant. What was good about this servant? He used the interim time to maximize the profit for the nobleman now king. Okay, get that? Why was he good? He used the time and the mina to produce profit for the king. He worked hard. He invested wisely. He stewarded that mina, and he increased the value for the king. And then you see the generosity of the king, and don't miss this. He doesn't say, well, hey, that's great. Just put it over here and be on your way. No, he says, you have been faithful in a little. A mina, comparatively speaking, is a little. And based on your faithfulness in the little that I have given you, I now am going to give you much. He gets 10 cities. He's like his own little demi-king over, over 10 cities. The generosity of the king. The second follows the same pattern. You notice that. His is a 500% return. Okay, that's still pretty impressive. He turns the one into, into six, and he gets five cities, okay? Again, this seems very out of proportion. Like, really? A mina? equals a city, that's the generosity of the king. He is generous to his people. So we come now to the third guy, okay? And the third guy is probably, he's a little nervous, but he's thinking to himself, hey, this is going really well for these guys. I think maybe it's gonna work out okay for me. And notice, uh, notice this part of the story, verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Notice that, you wicked servant. 
You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at coming I might have collected it with interest? Now, listen, here is the power of the parable. The power of the parable is that the king has expectations for his servants. The king has expectations, real, severe expectations for the performance and the investment and the productivity of his servants. And the final servant here discovers that he was incredibly unwise to take the mina and do nothing with it. He hid it in a handkerchief. Now that doesn't seem very safe to me. Maybe sort of that hiding it in plain view. What's the bump in the handkerchief over there, uh, Lucy? Nothing. It's the mina that the king gave me. Notice that the handkerchief approach is the do-nothing approach. It is the play-it-safe approach. It always seems safest to do nothing, doesn't it? That's why churches, when they have to come to make some decision, it's, there's a scene in, in uh, what's the movie, the claymation movie, Chicken, uh, not Chicken Run, Chicken, can't remember actually right now, Chicken Little, no, that's a, that's a different uh, story. But it's a, it's a great scene because the chickens realize they're about to be taken to slaughter and they're trying to, chicken coop, I think was the name of it. They're trying to get out of the coop. And so they're having this high-level meeting to talk about what should we do. And somebody says, let's try nothing. And the person says, yeah, that might work. <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. It comes to me as I'm uh, sharing this because that always seems like the thing to do. Right, and many a church business meeting lands on the let's just keep doing what we've doing been doing. It always feels safest, right? It's got to be best to just do what we've been doing. And notice that doing nothing is a terrible idea when your king expects productivity. The least safe thing to do is to do nothing if the king is coming back and going to expect you to have done something. And notice the king here; he expects results. And he points out, hey, listen, just like the no-brainer approach here, forget the 10 guy and the 5 guy. If you just wanted to be like not the dumbest guy in the room, take the mina to the bank and just get some interest out of it. Now, you say, wait a second, I thought the Jews couldn't lend. Well, they couldn't lend to another Jew, but they could lend to Gentiles and they would do that. Why not simply at least get a little bit of return by taking it to the bank? Now, I'm thinking the servant right now is going, whew, this isn't going so well. But at least I know in the end I get a city. Because the 10 mina guy got 10 cities, and the 5 mina guy got 5 cities. So after this dressing down, at least I know I get to have, like, a city. Because I still got the mina. It sort of makes sense, right? Well, here now is the, the dramatic turn, verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. Okay? Sounds like some modern day politics right now, right? Wait a second. You're taking from the poor and you're giving it to the rich. He already has 10 minas. And Jesus adds the comment now I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. 
But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's a dark turn in the story, isn't it? And by the way, who does it sound like? It sounds a little bit like what Archelaus did when he came back, right? The story is intended to convey a seriousness here. If Jesus tells a story where in the end, everybody that's against him is slaughtered in his presence, okay, this is not a humorous story. This is not intended for you to go, oh, that's kind of funny. This is a serious word from the Son of God, and it is a warning. It is a warning to his servants about his expectations upon us regarding what we do with the mina that God gives to us, that Jesus has given to us. The king expects results. Now, I've hinted at it a little bit, but let's draw the analogy, okay? Let's make sure we understand who's who in the story. So who's the king? Here's the cast of characters right here. Who's the king? The king is Jesus, okay? The king is Jesus. Who are the servants? Us, disciples of Jesus, okay? If you're looking for yourself in the story, you're not the nobleman, you're not the king, you're not the mina. You are the servant, okay? You're the servant. And what is the mina? The mina is the responsibility that we have to steward whatever God has given to us, okay, which is everything. I'll get back to that in a moment. But in terms of the narrative of history, this graph draws the analogy here of what Jesus is saying, okay? You'll notice the nobleman leaves. What's that referring to? Jesus' ascension. The disciples, hey, we're by Jerusalem. This is the end. The end is here. It's almost done. Jesus is like, no, no. There's a long interim time here between Jesus' ascension and in the story when the king returns, which is when Jesus returns. And in that in-between, the nobleman expected minor multiplication. But Jesus' great commission to us is he wants disciple multiplication and maturity. That's the call that we have. So the servant who is supposed to give himself to make the most with the mina is like the servants of Jesus who are giving themselves to multiply disciples, to mature disciples, and to, to, to have something to give to Jesus when he returns. And you're saying to yourself, but wait a second, come on, we're all like, uh, we're, there's no judgment, we're all free from that. Wrong. And I've talked about this over the years often. We all are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and we are going to give an account for our life. And we're going to give an account for everything, every mina that Jesus gave to us, we will give an account for it. And that means you, my dear friend. You say, wait a second, I don't have any minas. I'm not sure what you're talking about. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. What do you have in your life? That's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Think of all of the blessings that in this room we experience, that we have, 
the resources, the people that have invested in us, the opportunities, time, relationships, all of these things that we so easily take for granted, do we realize from Jesus' perspective, now is the time for productivity. Now is the time for the church to give itself with intention to multiply disciples. Do we realize that we will give an account to Jesus for how we did that? And in that accounting, there are some that are gonna be on the more and better side, and there are some that are gonna be on the good and plenty side. I know which side I'd like to be on when that day comes. And I'm hoping that you do as well. 1 Corinthians 4.2, it's required for stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful to what? I just want to note three aspects to this parable that are true for every mina that God gives to us. All of them are opportunities, okay? The servants had a mina. They all had an equal mina. Every one of them had the same opportunity. And our opportunities aren't minas necessarily. They are God's providences, God's provisions, God's resources, All of these are things that God expects us to use to bring him glory, to make the most of our life, to invest as much as we can in the kingdom of God. This is churches, this is homes, this is years, minutes, and seconds. This is big and small things in our life. And what an incredible privilege it is to be a servant of the king. Amen. And to realize everything we have, he has given to us. And how good he has been to us. But if we stop there and just sort of see these things as like my possessions, my gifts from Jesus, where's my handkerchief so I can hide it, we are failing to realize he's not giving them to us simply for us to enjoy, but to use Okay, to use for the goal of discipleship multiplication, fulfilling the Great Commission. That is the responsibility, which is the second aspect that every miner represents, is that there is a responsibility. Okay, hey, it's great to have minas. Okay, man, I love the minas. But there is a responsibility that comes with having the minas, and that is to multiply them. It's the king's mina. And the king expects a return. It's not your mina, it's not my mina, it's not Bethel Church's mina, it's the Lord's mina. And the Lord expects his mina to multiply disciples. And there will be accountability, which is the third aspect here. There will be accountability for what we do. Here's 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is, due, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. We would all do better to think about this more than we do, don't you think? Every day to think, this is a day that I will give an account for. For me to think right now, this is a sermon that I will give an account for. How should I preach? How should I pastor? everything I got, as best I can, for the king. And the same for you. 
to realize that Jesus is going to ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? At this point in your life, what is that, how, how does that answer look? Like, are you ready to give an answer, to give an account for your life to Jesus? We all are going to do it. How did you invest what I gave you? How did you use what I gave you? And this is the danger, I think, with the, with the third servant, or what I'm calling the good and plenty approach, which is to view the mina as a possession instead of as a gift. Okay, this is mine, and I get to use it the way that I want. No, this is the king's. We have to use it in the way that he wants. Are you with me? Okay, all right. I'm not, I'm not deviating from the meaning of the parable, I hope. Hopefully I'm walking on solid ground. And I say that because I want to apply it to an area that over the years I have found to be the most uh, inflammatory. The most inflammatory. Because I could talk about time, and I can talk about gifts all day long, nobody cares. But when I talk about money, all of a sudden, everybody cares. Is it a coincidence that mina and money almost sound the same? I don't know. I just note that. <laughs> okay. The parable of the money, I mean the minas, the minas. And it, it does apply to everything. But it most easily applies to money because the story itself is about finances. And what we do with what God has given to us. Here's what Matthew, this is what Jesus says in Matthew along this line regarding faithfulness with the provisions that God gives to us. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Part of the point that Jesus is making there is that faithfulness with money is a true indicator of character. It indicates what we really value in our hearts and in our lives. How do you know which of the three servants the faithful one was? Here's this, another way to look at this. How do you know which of them was faithful? Well, the answer is easy, right? The ones that faithfully handled the king's mina. And the one that didn't obviously was unfaithful and wicked in the story. What they did with the king's money revealed their true character. And again, I started this message by saying, I, I want to prepare you for eternity. And you and I are both going to give an account of our lives and our mina to the king. And I want to ask today, if your character was evaluated based on how you handle the king's money, which servant do you most resemble? It's a little window, okay? It's a little window. And Again, the story is that there's reward for those that are faithful with little. It's not all the negative. It's, there's this amazing opportunity that we have 
that when we are show ourselves faithful with the little things that God gives to us, now he is free to grant to us greater responsibility. If someone mishandles money, though, it's also a little window into a character issue. How can somebody that mishandles money, or what uh, he calls here unrighteous wealth, how can you be entrusted with really important things like gospel ministry and leadership and spiritual responsibility? And we see in the story here that that future responsibility was based on what somebody did with the smaller one. This is David and his, and his sheep before God gives him a kingdom and so many other examples like that. Daniel and others where they were faithful. When they were small and little and the little that God had given them, they were faithful with that. And God said, that's the character that I can grant really significant things to. If you long for your life to matter, to have significant spiritual things that are tied to your life, could it be that you are, God is not granted you that because you haven't been faithful with what God has already given you. I don't have time for the story, but I just feel compelled to tell it. I learned this lesson so powerfully in my life. In my early years of ministry, I was a youth pastor. I had a little small uh, youth group. By the standards of our youth group here, it was a Bible study. But that was my youth group. And I was aspiring to other things, and I wanted God to do big things in my life. And I never forget, I went in to talk with, uh, with my pastor about it. And I just said, you know, it just something's not clicking, something's not right. And I'll never forget, it was a Holy Spirit moment when he said to me, he said, Steve, you gotta be faithful with what God's already given you. And he said, what if David would have said, oh, these few small sheep. And God used that, it was like, like this. I mean, it just pierced me to the core. And I realized Rather than having my eyes on the lofty things of the future, I needed to be faithful in what God had given me, those few small teenagers. And that's what I did. And it was just a couple years later, this church from Northwest Indiana called, hey, you want to be our senior pastor? Would that call have come if I had not been faithful with the few small sheep? And what about in your life? Do you aspire to great things for God? You don't want to waste your life. But your eyes are always on the future and the lofty thing rather than being faithful with the thing, that, the mina that God has given you today. Now, my time is fleeting because I told that story. So what does it look like? How can I be faithful with God's money? And uh, the simple answer is by giving it away. Now, that giving is not like I'm giving it to my Aunt Lucy in the Moose Lodge or something like that. This is, okay, that's handkerchief stuff. We're talking about using the money that God has given us to invest it in kingdom work that is producing fruit, okay? By producing fruit. And when I talk about this, I, I, I can get asked, well, Steve, be practical, because it's so easy to sort of talk in generalities. Everybody leaves, they don't know what to do. Be practical with what you're talking about. So let's assume that you and I, you're a brand new Christian. You don't know anything, and you're like, I want to honor God with my money. Tell me what to do. Here is training wheels approach, okay, to Christians and money. And so here's a practical guide. Here's what I would say. Well, I would give 10%. Give 10% to the Lord's work right off the top. I would save 10%. And then I would live on the 80. 
Now, why do I say that? Well, because giving away cultivates generosity, and generosity is one of the basis of God's rewards, is when we are generous. Saving 10% is just smart, wise living, and we should be doing it. I encourage all of you to do it. And living off of less than we have and less than we make cultivates contentment, which is also a high virtue in the eyes of God. Now, I've put this same thing up, I don't know how many times over the years, and I hesitate to do it because everybody focuses in on this. Nobody comes up to me and says, now let's talk about that saving part. Or let's talk about that contentment part. No, they want to talk about this one right here. And many people look at that and say, there's the end goal. And I don't know what God has called you to give. I would want you to view that as a starting point. If you've walked with Jesus for some time, I hope that looks different than, I hope your thing looks different than that. But if you're a new Christian and you're just getting started, there's a great place to start. Here's the principle. Give as much as you will be glad that you gave when the king gives you rewards. I'm trying to get you ready for eternity, right? Someday, give whatever you'll be glad you did someday when you stand before the Lord and he is giving you those rewards. You think the 10 mina guy, after he gets the 10 cities, is like, oh man, I should have scaled back. No, he's like, fantastic! I'm so glad that I was faithful during that time. I had no idea how generous he was going to be. How many people in eternity are going to be exactly like that? Wow, I had no idea how generous he was going to be. I'm so glad that I did that. And how many people are going to look back with tremendous regret at the handkerchief life and the good and plenty life that they lived? If only I would have realized, if only somebody would have told me, I'm telling you right now, live, give, invest your life in a way that you'll be glad that you did when the king is giving his rewards. Okay? So that means now, right? Now is the time to do all that you can. Now, the last thing I gotta say because I'm out of time. I just want to talk about the mina and more and better, okay? Now, this is God's truth. It can be talked about at any time, and it's completely relevant. It's particularly relevant right now in the story of our church. The king here criticizes the unfaithful servant for failing to steward the potential of the one mina, okay? He didn't lose the mina. That'd be even worse, right? Like, I don't know where it went. He didn't lose the mina. He says, hey, here's the mina you gave me. I'm giving it to you back. He still says, you're a wicked servant, because you didn't steward the potential that that mina had. Which brings us to more and better and good and plenty. And that's why more and better isn't merely a slogan, it's a vision of life. I can say this, I could go to our Verge youth group and say, young people, don't waste your life. You're 16 years old, do you realize the potential your mina has right now? Don't waste it, use it, serving the king. And all the older people that I see here in front of me right now, I can say to you, you're not dead yet. you got a mina that right now can do something. Do something with it. Someday you'll be glad that you did. And over the years, as we shared last week, God has given us so much mina around here. I mean, we are blessed by nearly any comparison. We are blessed by the the mina that we have here, the people, the talents, the, 
the heart, the giftings by the Holy Spirit, natural gifts, and yes, money as well. We are so very blessed. And we could say, hey, let's just take all of that and put it in the handkerchief. And this is a way for Jesus to come back. We'll be good. It's safe that way. But while it's there in the handkerchief, it's not working. It's not producing. It's not bearing fruit. It's not reaching anybody. And what is lost is all that could have been done for the king if we would have been willing to go for it. And so last week we stand up and we say, hey, how about a Chinese-speaking Bethel church? Like, I could say Martian-speaking, but Chinese is about as, like, crazy, isn't it? And you're all like, oh, that's sort of interesting, you know, Chinese-speaking. Who would have thought of that? I didn't expect to hear that when I came to church today. Why do we do that? More and better. Is it going to work? I have no idea. But let's just try right? Let's try. I don't think there's condemnation from Jesus for trying things, right? Let's just try it. Let's see what God might do. Who knows who might be reached because this church tried a Chinese thing. So we're, not, we're saying, let's just not, let's like throw the handkerchief away. Let's pretend we don't even have a handkerchief. And let's go for it, okay? More, more, better. Do we have minus? Yes, we got minus in Gary and minus in Cedar Lake. A couple minus in Crown Point and, and in uh, Portage. Is it good enough? No, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. We want more, okay? We want more. And that holy dissatisfaction with where we are that sees a generous king waiting to reward faithfulness and stewardship today. He is no Archelaus. He is the king who loves us. He is the king who died for us. He is the king who can't wait for the judgment seat to lavish us with cities, with rewards, with blessing. And calls us to strive and to steward every day, every dollar, every opportunity, every cracked door, every little way that we possibly can to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, to see sinners come to faith. The wonderful testimony, here you are in the second row that you shared in the service today. Wouldn't it be great if there were 100,000 more of those that we have the joy of seeing people come to saving knowledge of Jesus and give testimony that life is changed and better, that there's new life in Christ. It's way better than the whole sinful, selfish thing. Man, it's living for Christ and living for Jesus. And to multiply all these minas in obedience, yes, but with joy and with passion and with love for our Savior because we want his fame to be great and his name to be lifted high in all the world. Okay? More and better for the king. All glory be to him. Amen.